1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of Hashtag Ask the Live. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. I am riding solo today. Uh, it's because I'm supposed to be in Florida right now with Ryan. Uh, we have a coffee shop down there called Bandit Coffee Co. And my plane got canceled yesterday. And so I'm stuck here in sol- sunny... No, wait. It's not sunny, is it? Is it? It's snowy. Snowy Missoula, Montana. <laughs> Uh sorry, I was thinking forward to Sunny uh St. Petersburg, Florida. But that's all right. So so I'm here and I'm solo, but I'm going to answer some of your questions today. And and so um let's see here. Uh Ryan and I just had a documentary come out. It's called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. And it came out this summer in theaters, it hit online uh later this summer, and now it is available Um, on Netflix, finally. So we're finally on Netflix. And so we've had hundreds of thousands of people watching it on Netflix. So some of you might have questions about the documentary. If you can't find it in your country, you can always find it on Vimeo. It's available worldwide on Vimeo. And so I'd love to answer some questions for you. Sean, uh, I've got podcast Sean here with me right now. He's monitoring this. This is the first time we've ever used uh, YouTube Live, by the way. I don't see any questions on my screen, which is either a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know, so let me refresh what I've got here, and um, we'll see if anyone has any questions. Do you see a video of me at all? anywhere? I've got people watching me. Uh, it says It says there there are are eyeballs aggregated onto the the screen. So um, I could pontificate for a few minutes. Do you see anywhere where there are questions, or is anyone making comments here? Yes. All right, sweet. Here, here, here's how we're going to do it then. So um, we have podcast Sean here. He's going to throw out the questions that he finds to be the most relevant. You'll hear his deep baritone voice in the background. We we, we typically don't give Sean a, a microphone, by the way, because he's much more intelligent than us, and he would make us sound far dumber than we are. And and so, um, yeah, we uh, uh, we're going to handle it this way. He'll throw out some questions. I will answer them impromptu, this sort of extemporaneous exchange between you and I. And maybe we'll answer questions until my water is gone. What do we got, Sean? A lot of hellos. A lot of hellos. Well, hello! Uh, Okay, what just
0: popped up? Are you planning on making another movie in
1: the future? Are you planning on making another movie in the future? Uh, My answer to that is I don't know. Uh, I think those are three of the most powerful words in the, in the English language, by the way. Just saying, I don't know, abdicates you, not completely from your responsibilities, but from having to know everything. Now, I will tell you this. So Ryan and I, six years ago this month, we started TheMinimalists.com. And that journey started before that even. You know, as I had simplified my life back in uh, 2009, my, my mother died and my marriage ended both in the same month. And uh, those two events really forced me to look around and, and start to question what had become my life's focus. And I realized I was so focused on, on the wrong stuff, right? And I forsook the things that were most important to me. And I embarked down this journey of minimalism where I, I started letting go of the excess stuff in my life, mainly so I could start focusing on what was truly important to me. And, and figuring out what was important to me. So my health, my relationships, passion, contribution, growth. These are the, the core values that I uncovered after letting go of the excess stuff in my life. And uh, I, people at work started coming up to me and saying, you seem so much... Less stress. You seem so much calmer. You seem happier is what my best friend, a guy named Ryan Nicodemus, he came up to me and he said, hey, you seem happier. And it's not that my life was perfect. It was far from perfect. It wasn't stress-free or free of anxiety. It was just improving my overall situation, letting go of the more trite, vapid problems and improving the problems I had in, in my own life. And so by letting go of the excess stuff, people around me started noticing the the benefits of of minimalism, the benefits of simplifying my life. Because I never jumped up and said, look at me, I'm becoming a minimalist. Minimalist. And you should too because all of you, you have so much crap and I'm judging you. No, even now, Ryan and I aren't going out proselytizing. I don't want to convert anyone to minimalism. That's not the idea here. What we're trying to do is share a recipe that's worked really well for me and a slightly different recipe that's worked really well for Ryan. And uh, that's what we've really done over the last six years. So when we first started TheMinimalists.com, it was because Ryan was like, hey, I've been journaling about my whole process of simplifying after he had He had found out about minimalism from me, and he did this crazy thing called a packing party. For those of you who aren't familiar, check out his uh, TEDx talk that he did. You can just go to our YouTube page there, youtube.com slash The Minimalists. We have two TEDx talks there. I did one, and he did all the background theatrics. That one was this year. And then a couple years ago, he did one called A Rich Life with Less. And, And in that TEDx talk, he talks about this packing party where he boxed up everything that he owns, literally pretended like he was moving. So he had this huge 2,000-square-foot condo, and everything he owned he, he boxed up as if he were moving. So even his furniture, his electronics, his toiletries, his clothes, his, his kitchen utensils, everything that he owned pretending he was moving. And over the course of about three weeks, he unboxed only the items he needed. And he learned some pretty important lessons throughout that process. Mainly at the end of this three-week process, 80% of his stuff was still in boxes. And you're like I can't even remember what's in most of these boxes. I worked so hard over the last decade to accumulate all these things to make me happy. But those things aren't doing their job. And so he decided to let go of all of it. And through that process he was journaling and about a month later he came to me. Uh, this was the fall of of 2010 and he said, "You know, I think other people could find value from from this journey. I found value from from your story, Josh, and uh, and I think other people would find value from our story. And so uh, you, you've been talking about these different websites out there that, that uh, led you toward minimalism. Maybe we could share our story as well. And so that's where the minimalists.com started was with that 21-day journey, that packing party and the lessons learned from that, really. And, and, and from that process, what, what we learned is, you know what? People are getting value from this. So I kept writing more and more about it. You see, throughout my twenties, I wanted to write literary fiction. That was really my my passion, the thing that that I wanted to do. I wanted to write books, and so this is a very circuitous answer to to answer there the the question. But I'm getting there, I promise. Um, so so I wanted to I wanted to write books mostly, right? And. and then we started blogging. In fact, we didn't even know it was called a blog at the time. We just started writing these essays online, putting them up online at our at our website. And uh, people started getting value from that. They started sharing it with their friends and family. In that first month, we had 52 people visit our website, which was really great. But it was only great because I spent most of my 20s getting rejection letters from people, agents and publishers telling me no, 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 no. And now people were finally saying yes to what I was uh, what I was creating, at least uh, a few dozen people were. But the cool thing about that is when you find value in something, I, I don't know, know about you, but when I find value in something, I tend to share it with the people I care about. So, a blog post or a movie or a TEDx talk or a podcast episode, if I enjoy something, I'll share it with the people I care about, hoping they get the same kind of value that, that, that I got from the thing. And so, Over the last six years, we found different vehicles to add value to people's lives. This is getting back to answer your question. You needed some context first. And so uh, uh, we wrote our first book in 2011. It's called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. And people found value in that. And then Ryan and I moved out to Montana four years ago, wrote our second book, Called everything that remains it was a memoir about the last four years of of our lives and and so that was a different vehicle to share our message but then we also went out on tour we've been out on a bunch of tours the largest tour we ever did was back in uh, 2014 we did 100 cities over the course of 10 months in eight different countries 119 different events And and during that process, it was a different vehicle to communicate our message of simple living. And, and, uh, in fact, you can see that, uh, much of that tour, uh, in our new documentary, which is called Minimalism. It's on Netflix now, for those of you who are just tuning in. Uh, It's also everywhere else. You can find all the details to that and watch the trailer. Share the trailer as well at minimalismfilm.com. And uh, what we learned is that over time, there were all these different vehicles, to share our message of simple living with other people. Again, not in, the, in any way trying to convert anyone or convince anyone that minimalism is the path you must follow, it's a path that can lead to a more fulfilling life, a more meaningful life. And that really starts with the stuff, by letting go of the excess stuff. But the real purpose of minimalism has to do with the benefits we experience once we're on the other side of decluttering. And so over the last six years, we've found these different vehicles, whether it's our blog or our books. We've written three books together, uh, Minimalism of a Meaningful Life, the memoir, which is called Everything That Remains. That's my favorite thing I've ever created. And also we have an essay collection called Essential. And it's 12 different chapters on 12 different topics of living a more intentional life. Everything from minimalism and stuff to finances and relationships and decluttering and mindfulness and success and everything in between. And and those are... Those are just some of the vehicles we've used, but last year we started a podcast. We have the Minimalists Podcast now, and many of you are subscribers to that. We also have social media as a vehicle. Now, why are all these vehicles important? I think they're important because different people find value in different vehicles, and it's also important to note that we didn't start out and try to tackle all of these vehicles at once. I think we would have failed. We started out with a blog, with a website, and we started writing essays. We spent that first year doing that, and then eventually we had so many people asking, when are you gonna write a book? When are you gonna write a book? that eventually we did write a book. And from there, we started using social media more regularly because people found value in that because we also realized that, you know what, of all the books that are sold, fewer than 10% of people make it past the first chapter of a book they buy. So I could sell you know, 100,000 copies of a book, and while that sounds really impressive, only, 10, or, yeah, only 10% of those people, 10,000 people are going to even make it past the first chapter. Even a smaller percentage are going to make it to the end of the book. So even if you write a really compelling book and sell a bunch of copies, it's not going to reach nearly as many people as maybe a TEDx talk would or a video on YouTube or Facebook. And so the question I ask whenever we, we use a new vehicle to create and to share value with other people is, th- that question is, does this add value? And, and what I mean by that is, does it serve a purpose or will it bring people joy in any way? And so even if it's a tweet, if it's a funny joke that I want to tweet, or something I think is a funny joke, if I want to tweet that, then, then I'm going to ask before I send it, is this going to serve the greater good? Is this going to add value to someone's life? And so we found these different vehicles along the way. And, and back, back in 20, the end of 2013, so three years ago now, uh, about half the life of, of the minimalists so far, we partnered up with a, a very talented director named Matt Diavella. He's from uh, New York City. And uh, he has done a bunch of really amazing uh, commercial work, a very talented visual genius, but uh, hadn't done a a feature-length film yet. And he had wanted to do something meaningful uh, with his creative skills and talents. And so he decided, you know what, if I can partner up with these guys, after we talked him into it, basically, um, I can create something meaningful. And so three years ago, we started working on a documentary. And... Uh, we did that because we didn 't want this journey to continue to just be the josh and ryan show it 's great that we have a message that we 're able to communicate with people but and they 're able to find value in it but let 's show people there are other lifestyles out there as well. so with the documentary, we went out there and we 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 interviewed minimalist families and minimalist architects and minimalist entrepreneurs and travelers and tiny house enthusiasts and uh, so uh, Social uh, wait, so- <laughs> economists and and, and neuropsycholo- uh, neu- neuropsychologists and neuroscientists, and, and we've we found that there are basically all of these different um, all of these different views on living a more intentional life. We wanted to to meld those together to show people that minimalism isn't this radical lifestyle; it is a practical. Lifestyle. And quite often people hear this word minimalism and they think radical, right? They think stark white walls and they think uh, owning no possessions. And minimalism can certainly do that for you if that's what you prefer. In fact, one of the guys in the film is a good friend of mine. His name's Colin Wright, and he owns, I think, 52 things in the entire world. Everything he owns fits in his backpack. And while I find that to be admirable, it's not the same life that I want to emulate. And so that was one, one prescription for minimalism or one way that minimalism could help your life. Now, he does that because he likes traveling to new countries, and he travels all the time. He's a full-time traveler, and so him owning a, a, a kitchen table is a- actually getting in the way of, of of travel. And so uh, I saw the other side of things too with people like uh, Leo and Eva Bobalta. Uh, Leo's in the documentary. He has six kids. He and his wife Eva have six kids and they're a whole minimalist family. And then we have people in the suburbs. We have people in the city. We have people in tiny houses. We have uh, people who are living the lives that are appropriate to their life. But We also backed it up with with much of the, the science and social science behind uh, the, the benefits of minimalism. And so this documentary was another vehicle to communicate that, right? And, and and so will we use this vehicle in the future? Will we create other documentaries? Yeah, probably. Uh, what will that look like? Will it be a feature-length film? Will it be a TV show? Will it be video essays? Will it be live Q&A sessions? Um, more of these online in the future? Uh, yes, probably to all of those. Uh, uh, the, the key is am I excited about working on this project and, and am I willing to put in the drudgery to make it happen? And is that going to be a video thing? Is it going to be another book is it going to be is it going to be a different type of vehicle different type of creation and my answer is i don 't know yet exactly what it looks like. We have some ideas that Ryan and I are throwing around in fact, next year in two thousand and seventeen, we want to hit the road with six simple ideas in front of some more some small crowds because we've we 've been fortunate enough to garner a large large audience and have some fairly large crowds at our events but uh, w- once we're ready with some of these ideas, we're going to hit the road and bring them to some small crowds and try to work them out in front of, in front of an audience before we film them or write them or or, or do whatever we're going to do with these new ideas. So that's uh, that's my short answer. Are we going to are we going to start a are we going to uh, do another film in the future? Yeah, maybe. But if I say yes to that, that means I have to say no to everything else so that I can create the best thing possible. And so stay tuned. Uh, If you're not on our mailing list already, our email list, you'll know about any tour dates we do or any new creations we put out there. You can just go to theminimalists.com, enter your email there, and we'll never, ever send you spam because spam is disgusting. Sean, do we have another question?
0: We have quite a few. Nice. Um, There are quite a few folks on here, Josh, that were asking about uh, veganism, your thoughts on veganism, especially health benefits and the minimal impact on the planet.
1: Would sure yeah so so asking about veganism or, or let 's just expand out a little bit on that let 's just talk about diet in general uh, my My diet is over ninety percent plant based and I think that 's important it, it, because many of these lifestyles we, we tend to think of as binary, so if you take minimalism as a lifestyle it 's not about owning nothing it 's about owning what 's appropriate for my life, and I think you can extrapolate that. And, and transpose it onto this idea of diet as well, whether that's veganism or vegetarianism or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, most of my my diet is plant-based, although this year I just started incorporating red meat back into my life because I've had a significant number of health issues. You can go back and listen to episode number 30 of our podcast. It's an episode called Away. And you can check that out at theminimalists.com slash podcast. I'll talk about some of my health issues. But One of the things I found out is I am anemic. And so um, I don't have a taste for red meat at all, but I did start incorporating meat as medicine back into my life. And, and the good news is I'm no longer anemic, which is which is great for me, but it's also helping me uh, refocus on, on other aspects of my life as well, right? And, and so uh, or I should say other aspects of my diet as well. I probably have the most pristine diet of anyone th- that I know, and, and it's because I've faced a lot of health issues over the years. Throughout my uh, late 20s, I was on a, a, a long round of antibiotics, and it really killed my gut microbiome, and so I'm working on repopulating that. That I'm working with actually a team of uh, a couple doctors and a consultant, and a food scientist, and my partner, Becca, who's over here on the other side of the room. Uh, she is a registered dietitian and the best cook that I know. Uh, by the way, if you want some great recipes, you can check out her website. It's uh, minimalwellness.com. And I think 100% of her recipes are gluten-free, too. Um, so i uh, my diet uh, the cornerstones of my diet are actually w- uh, are the things that I avoid most. so I avoid processed foods I, including sugar i mean sugar is a processed food so but let 's just make that a separate category I, I avoid sugar a- and uh, then i I tend to avoid uh, gluten and and I have a relatively low carbohydrate diet uh, relative to the standard American diet, but it 's certainly not not a, a what one would call a ketogenic diet i don't i 'm not below you know a hundred uh, grams of, of carbs a day, but I still have a relatively low uh, uh, carb diet, but I'm eating real foods. And I think that's the, the, that's the key to a healthy diet for me is, is am I eating a plant, pr- primarily plant-based diet, a uh, relatively balanced diet? And it is, is essentially everything that I put into my body, a real food. And so if you want to read more about my specific diet, You can just go to theminimalists.com slash diet, and you can see exactly what I eat and how I eat it. What's our next question, Sean?
0: All right. Uh, Let's do a holiday one here since we just had the holiday episode. Uh, We have a viewer that's dealing with family that's demanding that they exchange gifts and they get offended when they don't.
1: Okay, so we're talking about holidays, family members who get offended that they don't want to participate in, in the the holiday gift exchange. Well, a few things. Uh, we, we've gone through this this year personally. Uh, Becca's smiling right now. So uh, we, have, we have a three-year-old, Ella, who you can follow on Twitter, at, at Ella Sandwich. Um, she says a lot of hilarious things, but... Um, Let's see here. So, so, Becca's family does a sort of white elephant gift exchange uh, at Christmas time. And for whatever reason, uh, Becca decided to opt out and said, you know, I've already got everything that I need, but let me opt Ella into this great gift exchange. And, and um, everyone in her family is like, no, we, we, everyone wants to buy Ella a gift this year, right? Uh, because we all want to give, and, and we've been told this, and so it's part of our culture. We, we, we've been indoctrinated to believe that gift-giving is what? It's a love language. I think that's like saying pig Latin is a romance language. The truth is that gift-giving, in its most literal sense, is not a love language. What we mean by gift-giving is a love language, we mean contribution is a love language. And so quite often, we confuse giving a a physical shiny object, look, I got you this shiny thing right here. This shows you how much I love you, right? No, it it shouldn't show you how much I love you. My daily actions, how how I I behave every day toward you shows you how much I care, how much I love you. Uh, Yet in our culture, we've gotten confused. and, And we think that because I give you something, that shows how much I love you. And by the way, now I have this expectation. It's called obligatory gift giving, right? And I think that giving gifts on the holidays are actually one of the worst times to to give a gift because everyone's expecting a gift. Hey, it's December 25th. I got you this widget. What widget did you get for me? Let's compare and contrast so I can see how much you care about me relative to how much I care about you. What a terrible way to celebrate a holiday, right? Uh, especially for these so-called um, Hallmark holidays, right? Valentine's Day is, I think, probably the most grotesque example. Here, I bought you some shiny rocks that someone may have lost a limb for to show you that I care about you, and now you give me whatever thing that shows me you care about me. I prefer—so let's talk about gift-giving in general. I prefer two things. First off—three uh, things, really. First off, I prefer, prefer to gift experiences over stuff. And so I think during the holidays, instead of it saying, I don't want to participate in your stupid gift-giving process, I think it's silly— that's just going to turn everyone off and make everyone upset. Why You don't want to do that for the holiday. That's not your outcome, right? Your outcome is, yes, I want to enjoy the holidays with you. Well, how can you do that? Well, instead of physical gifts, let's replace the gifts with experiences. And so find experiences that will resonate with you. And if you have kids especially, part of that experience might mean uh, – we had someone call into our podcast and talk about this recently. I think part of that experience is – uh, maybe you have to also buy a babysitter so that the, the the parents can go out and have a good experience uh, on their own right maybe it 's concert tickets or a movie or just a night out by themselves, or maybe it 's an experience for the whole family recently, uh, Bex and I we took Ella to go Christmas tree hunting. You can actually go back and listen to our holiday uh, ep- episode on the podcast. It was episode number forty one and I talked about that experience. It was quite the challenging experience because we almost died uh, Christmas tree hunting. But it makes it a much more memorable experience, doesn't it? But uh, even, if, even if we wouldn't have been in any danger, uh, we've, we've done – this is, this is the second year in a row we've gone out Christmas tree hunting. And that's an experience that for $5 you go buy a, a uh, Christmas tree permit uh, and you just go cut – you spend the afternoon hunting – Hunting a, a a Christmas tree finding going out finding one in areas that you 're allowed to find one, and a lot of states do this it 's not just out in Montana or Minnesota places like that. A lot of states will allow you to do this. And you find a Christmas tree and you make an experience out of that. There are a bunch of other experiences. So ask yourself, what experiences do you find meaningful? What experience would you find meaningful? Would your family find meaningful? And maybe encourage them to give those to you. And then also, you want to lead by example, obviously, give those experiences to them, right? And so I think now is a great time to start to shift the paradigm. Paradigm now. I say start to shift, right? Because when is the best time to talk about Christmas gifts? It's February. You're already way, way, way too late. And so you're going to have to concede to some of the normal traditions and expectations because by definition, traditions are not very flexible. But you can implement new traditions next year and you can start that now. You can start to plant the seeds for next year right now and, and... Make a little bit of of room this year so that next year your holiday season is much more meaningful. And by the way this more this holiday will be more meaningful by implementing some subtle changes in your tradition this year. So give some experiences. If you need to give a physical item, uh, some of those experiences you can gift up Maybe you can you can box up and, and, and hand into a you know, because someone wants that physical gift and the uh, especially with, with kids. Ella loves unwrapping things and so even if we're going to go do something like we're going to take her to to Florida this uh this spring and we'll give that to her for christmas but we're we're boxing that up and so it's a, a a wrapped experience so to speak uh and i find even that that the experience of unwrapping is in and of itself another experience that they, they get to enjoy for her birthday this year i wrapped up a pineapple and gave it to her and uh also blew up a bunch of balloons so she came downstairs and there were balloons everywhere and she just loves balloons. And so, again, another experience that you wouldn't think of as, as a traditional you know, gift giving experience. Um, oh, what else? If you're going to absolutely give give gifts, though, physical gifts, if you need to, why not gift consumables, right? Uh, a nice bottle of wine or a really great bag of coffee from one of your favorite coffee roasters. A few of my favorites are Dogwood Coffee and and Heart Coffee Roasters. And there are a bunch of others out there, too. You can Go to our Instagram page, at The Minimalists, and, and see some of our favorite minimalist city finds. Whenever we go to a new city, we, we talk about some of our favorite coffees. You can also check out our coffee house in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, theminimalists.com slash coffeehouse. You can see a photo tour uh, of that. So gift a bag of coffee, a really great bag of coffee or a bottle of wine or what are other consumables that you can share and experience with someone else. Think about that. And you can give a physical item that once it's done, it's done. And I think that's pretty nice. The last thing I will tell you uh, about gift-giving is obligatory gifts. I, big, I, have, I avoid obligatory gift giving, obligatory gift g- giving whenever I can. Well, what does that mean? So I already talked about December 25th or, or well, here's, it's, today's December 25th. You have to give me a gift. Or today is February 14th. You have to give me some sort of gift, right? Okay, if you want to do that, that's fine. But how about today is March 8th, Why'd you give me this gift? Well, because I care about you. Now, I don't think that gift-giving equals love, but I do think that you'll find value in this thing. And because I care about you, I want you to find value in the things I give you. Why am I going to wait until December 25th to give you that thing when I can give you this thing on March 3rd or November 11th or whenever? I want to show you I care about you every day. I don't want to wait till six or seven days throughout the year to show you that I care. So if I think you'll find value in something, whether it's a physical good or an experience, let's not wait until the holiday. Let me show you I care about you right now, and let me show you I care about you every single day. Sean, what's our next question?
0: Well, we actually have quite a few uh, students and teachers on here today, Josh. I guess they got out for Christmas early. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Their concern is how can you be a minimalist as a student, as a teacher, when you have so many physical books to deal with and physical papers to deal with, those physical items that are part of education?
1: Sure. So the question is about having tools necessary to do a... A task. And, and in this context, specifically, it has to do with education. So teachers or students who need to have a lot of books or a lot of paperwork or in the teacher's case, my, my former spouse, she's an eighth grade teacher and she had just so many uh, accoutrements that she needed to adorn her classroom with, or at least thought she needed to adorn her classroom with. So uh, a couple answers that that I'll have here. One is minimalism is not about deprivation. And so as a minimalist, everything I own serves a purpose or brings me joy. And everything else I get out of the way. So we have to be honest about the things that we have. And so many of these things, if they're tools, they actually serve a purpose in your life. And and so you can be a minimalist and still have a lot of tools to do the task you need to do. Now the way to, to determine whether or not those tools actually add value to your life is through temporary deprivation sometimes. So again, minimalism is not about temporary or it's not about deprivation, but it can be about temporary deprivation to determine whether or not these things are adding value to your life. And so for me, I will quite often do experiments with different bits of technology. So whether it's my phone, I got rid of my phone for 60 days. I wrote about that over at theminimalists.com. And by letting go of that, I I learned that I could bring it back into my life more deliberately. It was adding value to my life. And long term, I was actually depriving myself of that thing. I didn't want to do that at all, right? I, I uh, I wanted to have the thing as a tool, but I didn't want to be a slave to the tool. And so by removing it from my life, I brought it back in and I started using it differently. And so what if you, now is actually a really good time if you're a teacher and you're taking a break from those tools, summers are especially a great time because you have to tear down your classroom and all that other stuff. Or if you're a student as well, if you remove those things temporarily from your life, put them in a, a basement or a closet or the trunk of your car or whatever for a temporary period of time and then... Realize what did add value and what you just thought was adding value to your life and i I think, I think that 's important because quite often we mistake perceived value for real value and, and it and 's one of the most common mistakes and the other thing that we we mistake we mistake just in case items for value adding items so we often hold on to many of these these accoutrements that we have for classrooms or studying or whatever i was talking to ryan about this the other day you know for a long time when he was going through his packing party he still had these old calculus he's, he's a huge fan of math and was really into mathematics but he had all these calculus textbooks and notes. And he couldn't even decipher most of the the notes that he had, but he was holding on to them just in case he needed them someday in some non-existent hypothetical future. And I've learned that just in case are the three most dangerous words in our English language. And we have to be willing to let go of things we're holding on to just in case. And quite often we can figure out what we're holding on to just in case by temporarily depriving ourselves of, of those things and then bringing them back in, but using them differently when we do. I went without home internet for a very long time, and that was a a very powerful experience, one of the most productive times of my life. It allowed me to write three books uh, uh, during the years I had no home internet service. All right, anyway, uh, what what else have I deprived myself of? Uh, The phone I already mentioned, uh, I went without, oh, television for, for a very, very long time, about nine years without television, and I still don't have like what would be considered traditional TV, but Bex and I do enjoy once or twice a week watching a a, a film or a, a really good TV show, although I found that I'm just not as entertained anymore. Once I've removed that pacifier from my life for a very long time, there are very few things that I'm like eager to watch. But then the things I am eager to watch, like last night we, we finished the ninth episode of Westworld. Which is such a good TV show, and uh, if you haven 't seen it yet and you have an opportunity to see it, I, w- I would encourage you to, to see it because it, it spurs some really great conversations about consciousness and, and morality and artificial intelligence and uh, there are so many great, just well-written lines in that thing, too. We will pause it and rewind lines and, and, and watch it. And so um, we, I found a way to bring that back into my life in a much, much more deliberate way. So I'm using those tools much more deliberately than I would have if I were just to continue to coast on, on that pacifier mode. But that also means that I constantly need to reevaluate and keep asking this question, does this add value to my life? And if I'm honest with myself, I can temporarily deprive myself and, and and let go of something for a period of time and then bring it back in in a much more intentional fashion. And so try that with with many of the things. Also, I will tell you, that I think physical clutter is much more problematic than digital clutter. It doesn't mean that digital clutter is not a problem. In fact, Ryan and I did an entire episode on technology of our podcast, so go to uh, episode number two of the Minimalist Podcast. It's an entire episode about technology. But I will tell you this. I used to own 2,000 books. 2,000 books. Now, some of those I had actually read. But let's be honest. Most of them I, I, I bought with the intention of reading someday. But it was just like a just-in-case item. You, you go to the bookstore and you buy five, six, seven, eight books. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, I can't read that fast even, right? I'm, I'm lucky if I read... Well, I'm lucky if I get past page 50 in a book. If I get past page 50, it tends to be a masterpiece because I refuse to waste my time on getting to the end of of a book. But I had this huge bookshelf on my wall, huge bookshelf with 2,000 books, and I realized it was part of my identity. I had those because it made me look smart. And when people came over, I'd say, oh yeah, I've got this book and this book, and oh, you've actually read Infinite Jest, yeah, okay. But, But the truth is that the value isn't in the artifact itself. The value is in the experience of, of the book, of reading the book. And then by letting go of those books, I could add value to other people's lives because someone else could then experience those words as well. So I now have a, a much smaller physical book collection. Uh, it's a a well-curated book collection, maybe of 60, 70 books total. And, and those are books that I tend to go back and reference. They're books I've really enjoyed that I, I like to, to share with other people. And the new books I bring in, occasionally I'll have a physical book, but for the most part, I use e-books. And so I don't know what your preferred e-reader is. Mine happens to be a Kindle. Uh, I, and, in fact, I will I, often at night I'll read to Bex. You know, we were reading last night uh, before we went, went to bed. And most of the time that's just with, that, that is just with the the. the the Kindle that I have there at my bedside, right? And and so I found that books were especially problematic for me when I went through this experience of um, moving, and I had to move 2,000 books. And you know when you pull the books off the shelf, they're really light when you put them in a box one at a time. But you fill up a huge box of books, and it's pretty damn heavy. And so I threw my back out moving a box of of – a huge box of books – And so when people tell me that, well, digital clutter is just as problematic as physical clutter, I will tell them to try to move 2,000 physical books and then try to move 2,000 books on their Kindle. And you tell me which is more difficult. That's not to say that we don't need to organize things digitally. I think it's important to do that. But I think the biggest problem is the external clutter that we experience. I think our physical clutter is a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. And so by clearing the external clutter, we're able to start dealing with the internal clutter, which ultimately helps us deal with the eternal clutter that we're all facing, the existential clutter that we're all facing. What's our next Oh, and by the way, if you have a bunch of papers, scan them. Have a scanning party. Go to the minimalists.com/scanning. See the scanner that I use personally. Get rid of all your extra photos and paperwork and actually store them digitally so that you have a backup if anything were to happen to them. And, and you can do the same with your textbooks as well. If you really feel like, I need to hold on to this textbook, you can send that off to someone. Uh, there's a company called $1scan.com, and you can, uh, you can send your stuff off to them. They'll scan it for you, and then they'll incinerate the, the paperwork you've sent them. They'll deal with the clutter for you. What's next, John?
0: Well, we had several questions from some folks about your uh, thoughts on tiny houses, and you can kind of uh, riff on, to rent versus buying.
1: Okay, yeah. So let's talk about living in general. So questions about tiny houses and and questions about renting versus buying or just living situations. So one of the segments in our documentary, uh, which for those of you just tuning in, it's now available on Netflix. It's called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. One of the things we did was we wanted to show various... Uh, lifestyles in terms of, of of home life, right? And so we have folks from the tiny house movement, which I really admire, but I'm not really into to tiny house living. I don't want to live in a tiny home myself, especially with a family. I think it would be prohibitive. But even if I was by myself, I, I, while I would find it more appealing, I don't find it as appealing. I, I enjoy having more space, not large amounts of space, but an appropriate amount of space. In fact, we interviewed an architect in our documentary. His name's Frank and uh, he kept using this word that just, it stuck with me. And, and in fact, I think it is the the perfect word or the perfect metaphor for minimalism. He's a minimalist architect. And he talks about when he builds a house for someone, he doesn't ask them, do you want a living room or do you want a dining room or do you want three bedrooms or do you want whatever, an entertainment room? Because ultimately we tend to say yes. Do I want a dining room? Oh, I think I'm supposed to have a dining room. So yes. Instead, he asks you, how do you live your life? And he has people expand on that question. How am I going to live my life? And then he builds a house around that life instead of trying to cram a life into the house. And so I think that's what's important. So whether you're living in a tiny house. The question is, is that appropriate for you? Or are you living in a micro-apartment? So in, in the documentary, most of you saw uh, Graham Hill, who has this 420-square-foot apartment, and it is an amazing apartment. Uh, it sleeps seven, I believe. It has a home theater, and it has uh, a full kitchen. It has a dining room table that seats 12. It has a home office with a stand-up desk. It has a full uh, bathroom with a shower. But it's, a, it's 420 square feet in the middle of Manhattan. And you're like, how is this possible? Well, it's a modular apartment. It's much more functional than most 2,000 square foot uh, apartments. We also had a, a couple in there, uh, David Freelander and, and his wife, uh, Jacqueline. And they had you know, 520 or t- 560 square foot uh, micro apartment in Brooklyn. And what they had learned through a lot of study is that we use about 40% of our homes on a monthly basis. That means 60% of our homes in America go go unused. And the average house being built last year is over 4,000 square feet. And in addition to that, we have 2.2 billion square feet of storage space. So we're building houses that still aren't big enough to hold all of our crap. That is not a housing problem. That is a stuff problem, Right. And the cool thing about finding a space that is appropriate for you, it'll, it so in some ways forces you to get rid of the excess stuff because you're not going to have a bunch of storage space. I remember when I first moved to to Missoula, Montana, uh, we started a publishing company called Asymmetrical Press. It was me and Ryan and our, our friend Colin. We We were looking for houses to rent, and we found a house that would have been perfect, but it had a ton of storage space. And I know for some people that is a selling point, but for me... It said no. It made me say no. We're we're paying for a bunch of wasted space. I don't want that. There was these huge walk-in closets. Like, what do I need a walk-in closet for? Now, some people that may be appropriate for their life. Generally, it's probably not. The average American household has three hundred thousand items in it, And, and for most of us, that's because we've crammed a life into the house we've been given instead of trying to build a home or fit a home around the lifestyle that we want. So uh, if you want to see a tour of Bex and my minimalist home, you can go to theminimalists.com Milburn. That's my last name. And you can see Ryan and his partner, Mariah. They, they live in a loft in, in Missoula. And uh, you can find that at theminimalists.com Nicodemus. Now, what I'll tell you this is my life has changed over the years, right? So the things that when I first embraced minimalism, the things that added value to my life at age 28 – Aren't the same things that add value to my life at age 35? And vice versa is true. Right? My life has changed, so I bring new things into my life that add value now. And so I'm constantly asking that question, does this add value to my life? And if not, I have to be willing to let go so that I can focus on only that which is important and have the excess, sort of clear the path toward toward living my, my best life and, and being my best self. And so I'm constantly aspiring to be, you know, I'm 35 now, I'm aspiring to be my 36-year-old self. I want to be the best version of myself. And, and part of that includes the, the clutter that I bring into my living space. So you can see a bunch of different loving perspectives, including uh, Joshua and Kim Becker and their, their two kids. They live in a house in the suburbs, and, and that, life is, or that house is approf- appropriate for their lifestyle. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all I think it'd be great if there were because it'd be easy if I could hand you your list of here's the thousand items you're supposed to own and here's the square footage you're supposed to have to be happy. And for each new kid that you bring on board, you're supposed to have this many items and this many additional square feet. It just doesn't work that way because your life is different from mine. And so the things that add value to your life may not add value to my life. And so we have to keep asking that question. What's next?
0: Josh, we've got a lot of folks on here that have seen the documentary and are highly complimentary and passing that back and forth with each other. And a question that's come up a few times, uh, two of these that you can actually combine. One, what is the simplest, most succinct succinct way to explain to others what minimalism minimalism is, rather, Mm -hmm. without sounding happy, clappy, self-righteous? Yeah. And kind of roll with that into, uh, if you're just, a lot of folks are just starting out with minimalism, Mm How can you explain this and get uh, your family involved,
1: your yes. spouse, your children? Yeah, so so, so, how do you talk about minimalism? And then how do you get started with minimalism? And I'm going to make a third question there. How do you get other people on board with minimalism as well? And I think these all three flow together really nicely. So the first way you explain minimalism, when someone asks me, well, what, what is minimalism? In fact, I was just at uh, uh, Beck's brother just got married, and someone asked me about minimalism at at the wedding reception. And when someone asks me about minimalism, I will answer their question with another question. I will say, how might your life be better with less? And I'll just pause and let them think about that for a moment. Now, I'm not positing that question to sound pious, but I want to get people to think about what minimalism is because quite often we just think of getting rid of all of our stuff or we think about minimalist architecture or minimalist literature, minimalist artwork, minimalist music, and and those are all appropriate associations when you think about minimalism. But, But really, what we want to talk about is minimalism as a lifestyle. And so I'll ask this question, how might your life be better with less? And so when you're talking about how do I get started with minimalism, That's also how you get started with minimalism. You ask yourself that question. How might my life be better with less? Now, why ask that question in the first place? Well, we want to ask that question because we want to identify what the benefits of minimalism are. We all understand the how-to side of things, right? You know how to declutter your closet. You'll never see me and Ryan write The 413 tips on how to remove the clutter from your kitchen cabinets. Because everyone knows the how-to side of things, at least for the most part. Now, some how-to little tips and tricks, those can be helpful. And so don't get me wrong. I I think the how-to can be beneficial. But it's much more beneficial once you understand the much more powerful why-to. So how might your life be better with less is the why, too. It's the purpose behind minimalism. For me, it started off with, with regaining control of my finances. How might my life be better with less? Well, I made really good money in the corporate world. Back in my corporate days, I was a director of operations for 150 retail stores. And while that might sound impressive, it wasn't very fulfilling. In fact, instead of happiness and contentment, that career of working 70, 80 hours a week, it brought me a lot of stress and anxiety and debt and discontent and even more debt. Debt was a big feature of my life back then. In fact, I had six figures worth of debt. If you count my mortgage, I had half a million dollars worth of debt. And so I made really good money, but I spent even better money. And so my life, my financial life was out of control and it was the biggest anchor of my life. And I could tell you, if you don't have financial freedom, you're going to feel anchors everywhere else in your life. You're going to be tied to a particular lifestyle. And for me, I wanted to get out of debt. And so regaining control of, of the way I was spending my money, minimalism allowed me to do that. But then I started uncovering all these other benefits as well. As As I started simplifying my life, what else happened? Well, as I simplified, I started regaining control of my health. And it turns out I've had forsaken my health uh, for most of my adult life. At one point, I weighed 80 pounds more than I weigh now. But I also forsook the people closest to me. So my relationships were in shambles because most of my relationships were birthed out of proximity or convenience and and i was spending 90% of my time with people on the periphery the tertiary tier of relationships the the coworkers the networking buddies the executives the people who i thought had influence and 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 because of that the people i said i really cared about and loved i said oh well i'll understand i'll spend more time with them one day well i needed to say instead of saying one day i needed to say today is day 1 right flip that around and say now, as when I need to prioritize those relationships and minimalism allowed me to do that and start focusing on what was important to me, the relationships that were important to me. Also, what, what other benefits might you experience by letting go? How else might your life be better with less? Well, for some people, it's like, well, I really want to focus on, I've always wanted to, to start yoga or I wanted to, to focus on this passion project. I've always wanted to write a novel or write this book or start a blog or I've wanted to travel my whole life. These are all great benefits, if that's really what you want to do, and if there's something in the way, perhaps minimalism is a really good first step toward pursuing that value in your life. It's going to help you identify what your values are. In fact, Ryan and I wrote about these five values that we uncovered in our first book called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. We, once we got the excess stuff out of the way, we said, okay, wh- what's most important to us? Because it was strange. I, I was ostensibly successful, but I didn't actually know what was important to me. And so I was successful in a narrow sense, like I had a prestigious job title and I supposedly made a good amount of money, but I wasn't fulfilled by that lifestyle. And so how do you reach fulfillment? How do you reach a meaningful life? It's not by pursuing happiness. In fact, I think happiness is often the problem uh, of of our culture, the, pers- the constant pursuit of happiness. We confuse happiness with Ephemeral pleasure, with ephemeral indulgences, we say, "Well, I'm, I'm going to be happy if I get this thing." Temporary pleasure is not the same thing as long-lasting happiness. I think happiness has much more to do with living a meaningful life. It's a byproduct of, of living a meaningful life. And what that means is aligning your short-term daily actions with what your long-term values are. And so the values that Ryan and I unco- Ryan and I uncovered were health, relationships, passion, or what you might call creativity and then growth and contribution. And and focusing on those things allows me to live a much more meaningful life and as a result be happier. Yes, I am much happier at age 35 than I was at age 27. But again, I don't think happiness is the point. I think living a more meaningful life is the point. And happiness is a beautiful byproduct of that. And so now, now the question that just means, well, how do I get others on board? How do I force minimal, minimalism onto my spouse, my sister, my mother, my brother, my child? You don't. It's like, how do you force them to play ice hockey? That'd be a little weird, wouldn't it? If someone was asking me that question, I'd be like, well, why would you want to force someone to play an ice hockey, right? Well, here here's the problem, though, or the paradox, I should say. With minimalism, it is much easier if you have other people in your life on board. And so I think some ways to do that, or to express the benefits to them. So when you're asking the question, how might your life be better with less, you also want to show them how your life might be better with less, right? Now, you want to show them how your life is better with less. Now, for me, I didn't jump up and say, look at me, I'm becoming a minimalist, and you need to, too. Instead, people at work started saying, you're less stressed, or you're happier, or you're calmer, or what the hell is going on with you? You've totally changed. And that opened up the door for me to talk about minimalism by way of the benefits I was experiencing. Now, why, would, why did they care? Because they cared about the benefits. They didn't care about decluttering their closet. If you don't know why you're decluttering your closet, it'll just be cluttered again a month from now, two months from now, a week from now, whatever. But if you know the why. That gives you the momentum you need to keep going, even when times are difficult. Because quite often, we confuse excitement for long-lasting results. We'll get excited about an idea. I really wanted to clean up and declutter my home. But if you don't know why you're doing it, you're going to end up exactly back where, where you were. But if you understand, viscerally understand the purpose, emotionally understand the purpose of letting go, you'll be able to keep going. Now, how else do we get started? I'll give you a few tips. Uh, one is play the 30-day minimalism game. You can find the details to that, also tens of thousands of other people who have been playing it by searching the hashtag over on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, it's hashtag men's game M-I-N-S, game. But just go to theminimalists.com slash game. Here's how it works. The beginning of a new month, you partner up with someone, a friend, a family member, a coworker, an enemy, whomever, Someone you decide to get rid of some stuff with. And now you bet whatever you want. You bet a dollar, a nice meal, a trip somewhere. Bet whatever you want to bet. Bragging rights. And and then at the beginning of the month, you decide, we're going to get rid of some stuff. It starts out really easy because the first day of the month, you each get rid of one item. Day two, two items. Day three, three items. Starts to pick up. You start to get that momentum you need. And, And it fuels the fire with some friendly competition. I don't know about you, but I think decluttering is kind of boring. For those of you who think decluttering is awesome, I applaud you, good for you, wow. I don't think decluttering is exciting. So if you think it's boring like I do, then you're gonna make it a little more fun with some friendly competition. And so partner up with someone, start out simple, but it gets more difficult as the month progresses, right? Because day 15, you're getting rid of 15 items. Day 16, 16 items, oh my goodness, what 17 items am I gonna get rid of tomorrow? Day 20, it's even more difficult. Day 25. Now, whoever goes the longest throughout the month wins. If you both make it to the end of the month, you've both won because you've both gotten rid of about 500 items. And that's a really good start. And we've had many people who continue to play beyond the 30 days or they'll even start over on day 31. Or maybe you just go to day 40 it's 40 items. Whatever you want to do, you continue to put a dent in that. Now, you ask about what are the rules. Does a hanger count? Does a paperclip count? Whatever you want to count, counts. Be honest with yourself. Establish the same rules together. It's flexible. The purpose is to get that momentum. I find that many people who start out on this journey, they can't wait to get way past 500 items because once you get that momentum, letting go gets easier by the day. The more you do it, the freer and happier and lighter you feel and the more stuff you want to throw overboard. And then as you do that, other people... Will will jump on board. In our house, we we have a donation box. We constantly have Ella who wants to donate everything. Now, um, even if she doesn't like her dinner that evening, she'll try to donate it. Um, which is is quite comical, but I think we're starting to uh, establish a habit early, realizing that if I let go of some of these things, you know what? Other people can find value in it. Just because something doesn't add value to my life doesn't mean it won't add value to someone else's life. And so my willingness to let go is also my willingness to add value to other people's lives. A few other rules that might help you along the way. Uh, I'm going to recommend the 90-90 rule. You can find that at our website, theminimalists.com 90. And how that works is, have I used this item in the last 90 days? Am I going to use it in the next 90 days? If not, I give myself permission to let go of it. That typically accounts for seasonality because if I go back 90 days now, it's, it's going to be uh, summertime. And if I go back forward 90 days, it's going to be springtime. And so you're gonna you're gonna for the most part cover all seasons with that. And if not, I'm willing to let go of it, donate it, sell it. I tend to try to sell things that are that are greater than $250. If not, I, I try to donate the thing. Uh, another rule that might help you out, the 2020 rule. We also call this the just in case rule. Now, I realized that many of the things I was holding on to, thousands of items, if not tens of thousands of items, I was holding on to just in case. But I realized that many of those items that I was holding on to just in case, I could replace for less than $20 and less than 20 minutes from wherever I am. And that rule has held up for me, and I've only had to use it five times in the last five years and, and since, we, since we came up with that rule. And the cool thing about that is it's given me permission to let go of tens of thousands of items, just-in-case items, because I know I'm not actually going to have to replace them. And the five times I've had to use it, that means I've spent, what, 100 bucks in five years. It's not like you're going out replacing all these just-in-case items every single day. No, you barely ever have to use that. And the rules worked 100% of the time for me. My guess is it probably works 99% of the time. I'm sure there's an exception that proves the rule. Uh, one last rule, or actually it's a theory. I call it the, the 10-10 material possessions theory. It comes from a book called Spent. And um, the, the way that works is you take a piece of paper, on the front of that piece of paper, you look at the last decade, and you look at your 10 most expensive purchases over the last decade, and you flip the piece of paper over, and you write down the 10 most meaningful experiences over the last decade, and then you will just be shocked when you compare the two lists, and you find out that probably not a single item on there corresponds, or maybe one item corresponds to—and what that—what that, what that helped me realize is that, you know what, there are so many things I've brought into my life because I thought it was going to augment my life experience, but it wasn't actually augmenting my life experience. In fact, many of the times it was just getting in the way of my most meaningful experiences in life. And so before I tune out here, we're at the hour mark Uh, I want to remind those of you who are just tuning in, our documentary is finally available on Netflix. It's called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. And uh, thank you so much to everyone who has rated it so far. It's really close to five stars if you find value in the film, and only if you find value in the film. Uh, If you'd be willing to leave it a five-star rating and a review, we'd greatly appreciate it, whether you saw it on Netflix or if it's not available on Netflix, wherever you are, you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, in most countries, or worldwide on Vimeo. The cool thing about the Vimeo uh, uh, link, by the way, is it has six hours of bonus content that is exclusive to Vimeo, so you can dive deeper into the interviews. You can find those even if you you watch the... um, the film on Netflix or any other platform, you can get just the bonus content over at Vimeo as well. You can find links to all that stuff over at minimalismfilm.com. You can interact with us over on social media, wherever you find us. We're at The Minimalists pretty much everywhere. And if you leave here today with just one message, I hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for your time, y'all. I'll see you next time.
0: you gotta reach for, and you gotta grab, but oh, I bet that you be fine without it. So tear your eyes away, or tear your eyes. Away.